welcome back to another episode of Making Sane. Sorry if I sound a little bit under the weather this week. It's all kind of catching up on me. Yeah, I really wanted to kind of share this podcast this week because I'm joined by a very special guest who is Yaz. And Yaz has got a PhD in pneumotherapy and it's amazing to kind of get Yaz on the podcast because she studied food-induced anaphylaxis for a master's. So it's great to kind of get Yaz's like really kind of like understanding behind allergies and anaphylaxis and because... I feel with me and kind of with the blog and everything, it's always kind of like talking about my personal experiences. And it was great to kind of delve a lot deeper into allergies because obviously I kind of know the basics of allergies and what allergic reaction is and how it kind of happens. But to actually get Yaz's experience and knowledge of what she found out from her masters and her studies about food-induced anaphylaxis. So yeah, it's great to kind of get Yaz's experience on that. And I know this podcast is really kind of going to fascinate and intrigue a lot of people who live with food allergies day in day out just before i jump straight into it this episode is brought to you by Olson hair care which is the only hair care brand range to be approved by the algae uk and is 100 fragrant free so it's less likely to cause a reaction and they sent over a patch test to myself which i kind of left on my skin overnight to make sure it was completely safe for myself and they're currently offering a free patch test which is usually £4.95 but you can get it for absolutely free if you use the code MAYCONTAIN and you also get 20% off your first purchase. I'll leave a link in my podcast description if you want to find out more and I'll also leave a link on my Instagram bio as well. And finally, if you get a chance to write me a quick review on iTunes, I really appreciate it. Now let's grab a cup of tea, get yourself comfy and let's get straight to the podcast. Hello and welcome back to another Making Time podcast. I'm joined by Yaz, who I actually met through one of my housemates called Josie. And yeah, she was like, you need to speak with Yaz. Um, she's a immunotherapy, is that right, Yaz? <laughs> yeah, immunotherapy or immunology, one or the other. One or the other. And um, and she did a master's in kind of like food-induced anaphylaxis. So I thought it'd be amazing to kind of get Yaz on the podcast today to kind of talk about the science of allergies because it's a t- kind of a discussion which I've not talked about too much in making say, which I think is going to be really insightful for myself and all the listeners as well. So yeah, how are you doing, Yaz? Yeah, good, good, great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No, it's amazing to have you on and congratulations on getting your doctors in philosophy in humotherapy. You must, I mean, you must be so proud with that as well. Gosh, it was a right slug, honestly, five years. I mean, it was meant to be like three years, but then took me a year to write my thesis. And then by the time I actually had my oral exam, there was just so, there's so many things that was happening. It was lockdown and COVID. So it just feels like a huge relief that that, phase of my life is finally finished I was gonna say how many words how many words is it to, to write like kind of like the theory that must be if it took you a year to write it so I should have actually brought it up oh it's right have you got it yeah get it up we'll we'll put it on video <laughs> so actually you can guess how many pages do you think this is <laughs> oh my god like three thousand three thousand pages no it's um it's 450 pages all right so so i was i was thinking more words maybe not pages like but yeah it's massive yeah thousand words how many, how many words it's eighty five thousand words oh my god like <laughs> i don't even, i don't know how you did it yeah that's insane it was uh it was quite painful but i mean lockdown actually bought me the time to be able to write because it's not like i was getting it's not like anyone was going out so it gave me actually the discipline to be able to get on with it so got yeah. it done in the end. <laughs> so it's like less less distractions in it with the covid i think that's one thing i think when the first lockdown happened i was like no distractions i can just concentrate on work and obviously trying to get making saying like more content and get it out there so yeah I'm, which is so good 
A little bit about your background then. So you studied a master in food-induced anaphylaxis. Was that something you was always quite intrigued or interested in, or did you have like friends who had allergies and you wanted to kind of dig like a bit more understanding behind it? Yeah. So I did my master's in immunology, and um, when it came to the research segment, so how I did a taught master's, so an MSI. So there's like six months of like lectures and exams, and then the the remaining six months was you got to pick a research project project to work on and I I remembered at the time I lost a childhood friend to um, peanut induced anaphylaxis and so it was kind of a freak accident and also like we were only like 2021 and like it sounds like it sounds really morbid but you're not used to people your age at 21 passing away suddenly like that so um, what happened was as far as I'm aware she ate like she just did a training session in the gym and she ate a cereal bar that contained like a really small amount of nuts and that basically because she had exercised that pushed her into an anaphylactic state and she just passed away um so did, did, so did she have a nut allergy as well as food induced anaphylaxis or exercise induced yeah well she had a nut allergy um but she usually i, I don't know if she had an epi pen she had something that she had like medication that would control it but as far as I'm aware she didn't carry an EpiPen and it just yeah it basically was such small amounts and obviously now studies are coming out actually I worked on a study looking at exercise induced anaphylaxis and basically that's yeah unfortunately she passed away and this was around the time that I was picking the project and there was a project looking at um, the mechanisms behind um, peanut induced anaphylaxis and like from the immune system standpoint so why like what why is it that someone can have like a really like small like nut allergy kind of like just an itchy throat but then someone else can just smell it and literally drop Mm. dead like you know sorry to put it in those terms so that was what I ended up picking my research project on and I also looked at like the like new ways of diagnosing food allergy um, which we could go on to that in a bit because it's quite, it's not the gold standard for food um, diagnosis, food allergy diagnosis is not actually quite pleasant. So um, went on to do that and then I ended up working for a year as a research assistant to continue the project uh, before I started my PhD and I moved out of the field, but still in the realm of immune regulation, but more on like organ transplant rejection and autoimmune diseases. So I moved out of allergy. Yeah, so sorry to hear about your friend. And yeah, it's just, it's so scary as well because I think people just don't quite understand like even like when you, when I say to someone, I can't even have like the smallest traces. I was like, what? Like, and it is it's so scary. Like that's all it takes sometimes. And obviously she, she might not have been aware about how serious it was. And obviously like the EpiPen, hopefully. And I think I think thing with the EpiPen with adrenaline, always people just presume it's going to save your life, but it merely just gives you kind of the few extra seconds to kind of, get to the hospital and it's really interesting you kind of spoke about like the the gold standard of allergy testing and it, I thought it'd be great to kind of get you on and talk talk about that because I think it's something which I'm still kind of educating myself um, could we kind of delve a bit into that to kind of find like obviously what is the gold standard of food allergy testing yeah so obviously yeah so the, the one test which everyone knows about is a skin prick test and obviously they to detect the allergen um, IgE, so the protein or allergen, uh, we call it allergen IgE levels. So for you, for peanut, it would be the major protein is called ARAH2. That's the main sort of allergen that's involved in peanut, um, peanut allergy, allergen and peanut allergy. Yeah. <laughs> 
And um, there's also, so what you, I assume, did was a serum IgE level. So they would have taken your sort of, yeah, tested your serum IgE for RH2. But the gold standard is um, a food challenge, which isn't very nice, as you can imagine. They essentially bring you in and they will just start increasing dosage of, of giving you peanut until essentially just wait and see what happens. It's not, oh, wow. but it's like convincing someone that that's what you need to do. Like, mm, I don't think so. It's quite scary, isn't it? Just like knowing that like they're going to see what your tolerance is before your body then kind of reacts to it. Because I know, I know they're doing like clinical trials now with kind of like the peanut vaccine with like kids and teenagers where they're giving the peanut and it's like in a powder form, but obviously it's it's with the the kind of doctor or the, it's kind of getting overseas. Like you can't just do it at home, I don't think. And they're kind of doing these trials now where they give them a little bit each day into the body can then kind of tolerate one or two peanuts, which is crazy over the course. I think it was six months they did it. Yeah, I've worked on a couple of those trials actually as well, which we can go into um, in a bit. But yeah, it's um, yeah, it has to be in a proper facility. I mean, even right now, I mean, without diverging too much, but even with the vaccines, those who've had a history of anaphylaxis, they're contemplating for like the COVID vaccines, triaging them and observing those, um, we wouldn't even call them patients, but those people coming in for the vaccines just to see how they, you know, how they um, react 15 minutes later or even later. Because one thing people forget is allergies don't necessarily show up immediately. There's one type of allergy that can show up a couple of days later as well. There's different types of allergies and some are like different mechanisms of your immune system are involved. So that's something we also need to consider. People think of allergies as almost immediate to within the two hour mark. That's actually not how allergies always work. Yeah. It, yeah it's interesting i've had experiences before where i had allergic reaction and didn't yeah and you, like you said it didn't show up straight away and you presume when you have an allergic reaction like it's going to show up within like for me i'm like oh i'm in a restaurant i'm always like checking my chest and i just presume that the hives are going to show up straight away or the next like five minutes but like you said it, it, it's not all the case and like, i've heard of stories before where people have had anaphylactic shots 24 hours later which is, it's, it's insane because you don't really presume, you just presume it's going to happen straight away. No, no, no. So it's actually different. So it's different immune components in that time that's happening. That's why sometimes it takes a bit longer to show up. Kind of delving into when people do have allergic reactions, is it to do with um, the immune system attacking itself? Uh, so do you, can I just test your knowledge? Uh, how much do you think you know about, just to kind of gauge about, the immune system in allergies do you know much about because you mentioned ige so i know right so it's interesting I, i'm not i'm no i'm no expert and it's so funny like people reach out to me on instagram they're like what do you think of this i'm like i'm not a doctor i'm just a guy who's got an allergy who talks about it online but um yeah i know obviously with the immune system it it kind of mistakes it i think and then it starts attacking its cells and I know, I know it's got something to do with the IgE binding with the protein of the allergen, and that's what causes the reaction. Is that, am I I'm on the right lines there, just about, or not? Yeah. Essentially. We can go into the mechanism if you want. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so what normally should happen when you eat food is obviously we've got this... We've got this whole immune system. When we think of the immune system, we think of the systemic one, just the one that's, you know, just circulating around. Yeah. But people also... There's a lot of hype around the microbiome, obviously, in like our gut, but people don't realize we actually have our own immune system in the gut as well. And there's a whole host of different types of cells. It's so fascinating. It's really, really complicated as well. Yeah. What happens is when you consume normal food, you have these immune cells that kind of like just, just grab bits 
of the food that are coming into the gut. They'll take like this piece of food and they'll bring it in to like where like the lymph nodes are essentially in your gut and they'll suss it out. But what they'll do is they'll upregulate anti-inflammatory proteins. So basically marking this as, oh, this is safe. This is just a piece of pizza. It's safe. And it will um, switch the T cells. So one of the main immune cell players into like a regulatory sort of like an anti-inflammatory type. So it recognizes piece of pizza as safe. But unfortunately, what happens in the case of those who are allergic is it will switch to a pro-inflammatory type. So it will take this piece of peanut and be like, oh my gosh, this is bacteria. This is virus. This is a parasite. This is a fungus. And it will trigger it to a pro-inflammatory response. Um, So that's what happens from the gut. And there's kind of these theories as to why that happens. There's one thought that potentially you've actually had um, like some sort of injury, like so that you've scratched yourself, for example, your skin, and from you got exposed to maybe the piece of peanut. And from that, because your immune system trying to repair, it's like, what caused this thing that caused this injury? Oh, this this guy's the culprit. Yeah. So that's when it triggers a pro-inflammatory response. But it's also thinking how, like, is how does it get from your arm all the way to your gut? This is one other thing that um, scientists figure out. But essentially what happens is two phases. There's a sensitization phase and then there's the actual um, full response. And like, if you think about like with the, I keep bringing it back to the vaccines, but I think people are now beginning to understand the immune system a bit better because yeah. of the vaccines, but you have your prime and then you have your booster dose, right? So, I have yeah. so the very first time you're exposed to an allergen. So in the, in your case of peanut, what could also happen is you've got B cells. Do you know much about B cells? No, no. <laughs> They're the guys that make the antibodies. So I always feel a bit sorry for B cells because no one gives them the credit. They make the antibodies. Antibodies yeah. don't care. So <laughs> um, B cells, antibody producers. So the B cell will come into contact with this peanut and it will be like, okay, I don't, I don't think this is safe. So yeah. it will gobble up and it will break it down and then it will produce IgE essentially to this, this um, allergen. And the IgE is the antibody. It's the main, the IgE, there's different types of antibodies, yeah. but the antibody involved in allergy is IgE. And with that, the B cell also can switch on T cells. Well, the B cells and T cells kind of switch each other on. They kind of like cross arms and they wake each other up. But the B cell, not only is it producing now antibodies towards the peanut, it will go to the T cell and be like, I found this guy. This guy isn't safe. The T cell will activate and it will create memory. So anytime then you're exposed again to yeah. peanut, um, your memory T cells, your memory B cells, your IgE that are in circulation will come, will wake back up again. But what's happened, let's say you haven't had peanut in years. You don't have any more antibodies in your blood because you don't need them in your blood anymore. Yeah. But then your B cells, memory B cells will wake up again and produce more IgE. And the problem we have with antibodies, the reason why at least they're getting a lot of hype right now in the media, although as a T-cell immunologist, I'm like, oh, you know, give T-cells the credit. They yeah. deserve. <laughs> antibodies can bind to loads of different types of immune cells. So now you've got a situation where you have this IgE towards peanut that is activating a whole host of other cells, immune yeah. cells. And that's where the problem begins because that can literally trigger like a chain reaction leading to anaphylaxis so i went off a bit of tangent, but that's basically what happens with the- yeah no it's so insightful i was gonna say if you've not had allergic reaction in years then 
is is the reaction more likely going to be more severe because uh, so there's they're trying to um, scientists are trying to figure out what distinguishes between anaphylaxis and just a normal allergic reaction. It shouldn't that shouldn't be the case in terms of severity. What they're linking severity to is the amount of IgE you actually have in your system. So um, by that logic, if you haven't been exposed in years, you shouldn't even have circulating IgE because yeah. of your B cells suddenly produce tenfold more IgE then you'll have that situation, but you can't really predict as well. And there's this theory that these so these other immune cells, the ones that release the histamine, they're called basophils and mast cells. So I specialized in basophils during my um, master's project. The, so the histamine and other protein mediated producers, there's this other hypothesis that you have more of those in your body if you're going to have anaphylaxis. Yeah. So there's that potential theory floating around as well. Because I always find it interesting. So when I, when I was 18 years old, I remember I went for like another blood test. I don't really remember when I was five, like kind of like the gold standard. I don't think I did like the whole kind of like the food challenge. I, for me personally, I don't ever kind of remember going through that experience. I remember um, as a teen, like having lots of like blood tests where they kind of, is, do they expose my IgE to certain food components so then to see how allergic I am to them? substances is how it works is it the IgE in the blood which gets tested yeah um so yeah there's yeah they, they look at the serum IgE levels yeah like they're binding towards that particular allergen that you're looking for but there's also this other test that so I was using this during my master's project that it only got published a few years prior so we're talking about like 2012 2013-ish um called the basophil activation test so we call it the BATS so obviously basophils are those immune cells that produce the histamine so what we looked at was we take the participant in the trial's blood, just literally normal blood tests, like just one tube will do. So it's really yeah. it's simple. And we um, break, you know, we basically break down the red blood cells and basically like we keep fractionating the blood until we get the basophils. And there's different markers. Each immune cell has its own marker. So you're able to pull out the cell that you're looking for. So yeah. I was like, basophils. So I pulled out the basophils from this um um, participants blood and then I exposed it to the h 2 the peanut protein yeah then I measured the histamine release so obviously to balance the trial we had non-allergic participants and there was no histamine release yeah but it was those that were allergic and you'd see the and histamine released it, yeah so that was such a simple experiment that only took about three four hours so within a few hours you'd had a result which was we were looking at like justifying that that's a more I guess you could say more robust, but also more practical and safer and more ethical method in yeah. testing allergy, as opposed to just giving a kid a lot of peanut and waiting for them to go into shock. To react, yeah, <laughs> a bit more safer. And then I was going to say the, there's a there's a study. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was in the Telegraph. It's a bit annoying because you had to like pay to read the full article, but they're saying they're now doing human trials for like a peanut vaccine. But I've really struggled to find any research about this. Um, but I did get an email this week um, from someone who said they're doing trials in the US early next year where there potentially could be a peanut vaccine. Do you know, have you heard much about this? I'm trying to understand why they use the term vaccine. Um, I mean, it's so it's immunotherapy, which is exactly what yeah. I did for my PhD, but obviously a different context. Mine was organ transplant rejection. Yeah. 
but how immunotherapy works is yeah you essentially give like the participant small amounts of the particular allergen and then it basically what happens is the IgE switches to something called IgG4 which is a different subclass of antibody and that's the safe that kind of marks it as safe um, as opposed to IgE and that I mean that those were the trials that I was working on with like kids and so we were giving them boiled peanuts and because it's safer than roast peanut but small doses and inducing the tolerance by vaccine that to me implies that it's a one or two dose hit now i'm wondering how they maybe preclinically or in phase one i don't know if this is only going to clinical trials now so maybe yeah. preclinically they would have tested in the, the animal models that they had and decided what the safety range margin was so you can give enough for one hit to be inducing IgG4 regulatory T cells, regulatory B cells, as opposed to the pro-inflammatory B and T cells, um, but without it becoming toxic and inducing anaphylaxis. So that's quite interesting because then they would have had to, for one yeah. dose, yeah, I'm a bit like, mm, that's int- that, that's a bit, hmm. Yeah, because I've, I've heard, I've, I've heard it. Yeah, because they always do it. They always do it. Obviously, I've heard the one obviously where they're just giving like a little bit of like peanut to kind of like build up the tolerance. And so is it? Is that is that quite common now? Is that it's kind of still in trials? Is it to, to some extent that like it's not ready to be um, kind of available to kind of everyone just yet? No. So I mean, I was working on the phase one trial, and it was in kids. And this was back in 2014. And obviously I've moved on now. And yeah. seven years later, I actually haven't seen the paper published yet. And if it is published, I would like to know why I'm not an author, but we move. Yeah. Um, the trial I worked on. So it's still, um, there's still no, I don't know what it is, if there's no conclusive findings yet, or if they haven't, if they can't file for phase two. But I think it more comes down to an ethical standpoint. Yeah. It's kind of, because you know, you have to obviously consent to, it's one thing consenting to your children having the COVID vaccine when it's been shown to be controversial, but it's been shown to basically mostly be safe. Whereas when you have your child who you know is allergic to something, you know is at risk of anaphylaxis and, you know, enrolling them into a trial where they can have small doses, I think it becomes a little bit more complicated. And I think the reason why, I'm, I'm curious to look up this vaccine if it's, one or two, one or two hits, as opposed to a course over six months to a year of this yeah. wean. I guess um, in America, the FDA is a lot more chill than the UK MHRA and the European EMA, so yeah. they kind of get away with more risque, yeah, <laughs> risque kind of experiments. Yeah. Like I was going to ask in regards to kind of like the when you did kind of do your masses in food induced anaph- anaphylaxis, what was kind of like your biggest finding? Was this something which which kind of like really shocked you when you was kind of doing your studies, which kind of, um, you could say, had like an impact on you? It was like, oh, this is actually like really like quite, quite interesting and quite intriguing. I think it was more um, the fact that this was a robust method in testing, um, yeah. this robust diagnostic tool. And we found a, we fashioned a new customized antibody that could bind to histamine. And that was quite a fancy technology that we managed to sort of come up with. It was quite expensive to be able to collaborate with this company and be like, can you just make up this antibody as we can see if it's combined to histamine? And yeah. it worked. Pretty cool. And um, I think for me, it was 
basophils are these teeny tiny cells that basically they make up like a fraction of the immune cell population. And then there's another cell type called innate lymphoid cells, type two, which we don't need to go into, but they're kind of mainly in the gut. And these tiny cells have such a massive role in inducing allergy and anaphylaxis. Like it's not just, um, yeah, the IgE binds to it, but you think it would be like the big cell populations, like the B cells, the T cells. But actually it's these teeny tiny little guys that actually can be quite, that no one to define, like especially ILC2s, they can actually be quite dangerous. That was kind of the key thing. And also that, um, at least I, my project also looked at some air allergens as well. So hay fever, cats, house dust, but hay fever, cat, house dust mite. And that's it. I think I looked at um, And how actually the mechanism is so similar. And then that begs the next question, which obviously I didn't stay on to look at, but why then with hay fever and those air allergies, would you not necessarily drop dead? Whereas with venom, I was, I was going to say with the airborne allergy, can that cause anaphylaxis? Because I always thought it could. Um, and it wasn't a recent, I, I kind of, I've seen a study online which said if you've got an airborne allergy, it, it potentially could cause an allergic reaction, I think, but it, can, it can't be anaphylaxis. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's strange because one way of, one main, like, symptom sorry of anaphylaxis is a constriction of your like smooth muscle contraction and constriction of your airflow yeah so one would think well then with like hay fever and all of that cat allergen house dust mite but i'm just wondering if that's because it's to do with the root of exposure so thinking with like in ingesting something or like with venom and with medicinal, it goes almost with venom. It definitely it goes directly into the bloodstream. So it's like, oh, you know. yeah. Whereas um, with air allergens, for example, there's still like it goes through the mucosa. So like if you think about you're breathing it in, and you have an immune system within your nose as well. Okay, so you wow. GAs, you've got different antibodies there as well. So I'm wondering if that's like one layer of protection. Whereas if you're ingesting and getting pricked with you know, a B, um, that's going directly in. So it's almost a more aggressive response because you're getting exposed to more uh, increased concentration of yeah. the allergen compared to if you're just breathing and there's some cat hair around. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and then in regards to kind of COVID analogies, I really wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this because obviously obviously when the, the kind of vaccine come out, obviously all the news articles are coming up saying like, if you've got food allergies, beware, you could have allergic reaction. And I think within the food allergy community, it kind of scared a lot of us because we weren't too sure whether it was safe now. Um, can we kind of talk a bit about that like, on the podcast and kind of discuss, is it safe for people with food allergies getting the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> it just frustrates me. So my right. housemate and um, my housemate, best mate it was obviously me Josie and Esther I like yeah. really Esther went and got her Pfizer vaccine two days ago and I'm actually quite jealous because she barely struggled she just had a sore arm and Esther's had anaphylaxis before and I think this is how you know Esther's because you guys have all you know quite a few allergies yeah like as ever she is my case study so we always joke like the the case study is if you have a food allergy a peanut allergy you'll also have hay fever be allergic to cats, be allergic to, d- to dust, yeah. have my allergies to dog and horse as well, have eczema and have asthma. And she's got all of those things. <laughs> right. And t- 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 
right? For someone like that to have been fine with the Pfizer. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to end up getting sued on from this podcast. If anything does happen, freak accidents do happen. But from an immunological standpoint, there isn't a correlation. If you've had anaphylaxis to a wasp sting, then, or if you had anaphylaxis to pine nut, why would that be relevant to your COVID vaccine? Like why, yeah. you know, not what, what about your hepatitis B or your tetanus shot? Do you know what I mean? Why would be the, it be the COVID one? So I guess in those situations, if you've had a history of anaphylaxis to a medicinal product, because there could be some ex- excipients in the vaccine that are causing the allergies, like PEG, that yeah. is they're linking the anaphylactic cases we've seen too. But in that case, then don't get any vaccines or anything that's got PEG in it. That's the thing that you're allergic to. It wouldn't yeah. actually be actual mRNA or the adenoviral vector itself. Yeah, because I remember when I kind of spoke about it on Instagram, I was, I was really surprised at the amount of people which kind of commented back and was like, I've had it, it's safe. And um, it definitely felt made me feel a lot more relaxed after it. Because obviously you read all these articles and then it gets gets into your head and you're like is it safe is it not so yeah so you obviously it's kind of safe got allergies but it's always best just yeah checking the ingredients if you're kind of not allergic to any of them <laughs> yeah exactly exactly just yeah as long as you don't have a history of being allergic to any of the ingredients in there and you should be fine and even still i think they as i as i said they're mentioning if you've had a history of anaphylaxis you could get your shot within an actual practice but within an actual hospital setting get triaged and get after about 15 minutes to a couple of hours and if you're fine you're fine to release you so that's that's also something that they could do and then i was going to say with the vaccine was it was it was it a chimpanzee is that how they tested it i in terms of making sure it was safe i kind of read somewhere where they kind of use is that correct am i so that's the AstraZeneca. So AstraZeneca vaccine is the chimpanzee adenoviral vector. So it's taking the, a, a cold virus from chimpanzees and it's emptying it out completely, but just whacking in the COVID um, spike protein DNA fashioned. And the reason why it's a chimpanzee cold virus is that you're not going to have pre-existing antibodies to a chimpanzee yeah. virus. So because um, if you did have pre-existing antibodies, it kind of the vaccine really do its job properly. Yes. So that's the AstraZeneca one, whereas obviously Pfizer, Moderna is the mRNA tech, and that's just delivered in um, like a ball of fat, essentially. And I know you've kind of spoke a lot online about, I mean, there's some people saying, is it safe? Is it not safe? Kind of getting the vaccine because obviously the time that they've had to create it. Can we talk a little bit about that on the podcast? <laughs> Yes. I mean, I just, I was, every time people say that, I'm like, I did a four minute IGTV on this. It was my first one. So four minutes, people kind of zone out within 20 seconds, don't they? Um, Okay. So why did the vaccine only take 18 months to come out? Now, loads of different reasons, but um, first one is let's look at the Oxford AstraZeneca one. They were already testing the chimpanzee adenovirus for the MERS virus. MERS is a coronavirus, Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. Okay and SARS, and it, MERS and SARS are the same family as COVID. They're, they are um, coronaviruses. Yeah. So the MERS vaccine, which was the chimpanzee and adenovirus vector, was already in clinical trial phases. And then what happened when COVID came out, Oxford was like, brilliant, refashion it. You know, we already yeah. had tech, so they refashioned it. So that's why it was so quick. It was already in clinical trials for MERS. It's already kind of in kind of 
process because yeah, yeah repurpose, yeah, repurpose. Right. so so easy the other thing is um okay so let's say i'm supposed to actually to be fair i was coming up i came up with a drug during my phd it's let's call it pressure type one because the very first apple product i mean meh, it's yeah. it's sure but you don't really want to inject into patients just yeah. yet um so um i was by myself a poxy little phd student had four years had i don't know how much did i have i don't know let's pretend i had two hundred thousand. i wish it was part of my salary yeah. really, really, <laughs> to come up and four years, lot, yeah. <laughs> right four years by myself came up with a prototype of a drug that's it now the situation here where it's a global collaborative money is being plugged in by all the government bodies you've got department of health and human services department of defense private partnerships with the government private companies like literally plugging in millions and millions and millions so now you've got the situation where all these researchers are being told especially immunologists and virologists to abandon their current research because my old pre my old phd lab actually not mine but the ones around within the um department were offered all this money to repurpose their research towards covid because yeah. this had this was like a like a red alert situation so suddenly you go from having one little phd student me to come up with a drug to a global system where all these phd students postdoctorates people in biotech companies etc yeah. etc et professors all researching so with more money and funding comes more hands, more scientists, more researchers. With that comes papers every single day. At one point, it was every week new papers were coming out. You know, so for me to come up with a cure for virus Z, just one PhD student, and let's say there's maybe four papers published in the past 30 years on virus yeah. Z, you're suddenly having a situation where like every single week new papers are coming out and that's redirecting the research. Like, okay, try this. Okay, try this. Try this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Yeah. That's what's happening. So that's fast streamed yeah. the research. And from that, you've managed to come up with the technology a lot quicker. Also, in terms of mRNA, mRNA vaccines have actually been looked at in clinical stages for cancer. So I was reading about this in text textbooks during my bachelor's degree. So when people say, oh, mRNA is new. Yeah, I mean, it's new in terms of being in the clinic, but actually there were clinical trials looking at mRNA vaccines for cancer patients. But yeah, so essentially... I hope that's shown why this yeah absolutely and then and then I was going to say you've um I kind of get onto kind of like your your Instagram kind of um page where you kind of obviously talk about COVID and all these kind of how did that how did the page kind of come about was that quite a natural kind of um transition for you to kind of share your findings kind of with the world to kind of educate um that's a, yeah, no, that's a great question i think i have to bring up dale i always bring up dale so um around five six years ago just before i started my phd I'll never forget i was on the treadmill on virgin active and dale was this per, personal trainer yeah amazing because he would just come and talk to you and in the middle of a sesh for like half yeah. an hour i need to get on dale but okay we can chat yeah, right? <laughs> right so she was running on the treadmill yeah. He comes up to me on the treadmill next door. And I'm like, okay, right, let's go down to walking pace now. And he asked me a question. He's like, yes, why are you here on BBC News about a new HIV drug? Do you never hear about it again? I was like, oh, but, you know, that just means there's a potential clinical trial happening. I mean, there's always these interesting papers yeah. and things and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, but we don't know that. And that highlighted to me the lack of science communication to the public. So yeah. whereas... I know about the brand new cancer drugs that are coming out, the brand new like 
HIV drugs and AIDS, et cetera, et cetera. The layman and those that are not within the field don't even know that. Yeah. And that highlighted to me a problem. So, okay, that was always in the back of my mind. I thought maybe I could go into science comms at some point in my life, potentially. But then with COVID hitting and the amount of misinformation going around, there was a video that triggered the heck out of me. (laughs) Um, It was about the AstraZeneca vaccine. And what they did was they... I think, I don't know, you must have seen this about, oh, there's aborted fetuses in the AstraZeneca vaccine because they Googled every single ingredient and they went to Wikipedia and they were like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this was tested in this. Let's go to this. What does this mean? What does that mean? Et cetera. And eventually, and I just thought this nonsense that's being spewed. Yeah. So we need to put a lid on this. And even other things, there's the extreme situations like that. But even, for example, people questioning the reliability of a PCR test and how it actually works. And I'm thinking I've done over hundred PCRs in my lifetime for my PhD alone. And then questions like, Oh, I took the antibody test and it came out negative, meaning I didn't have COVID. No, that's not what it means. You very much could have had COVID. Yeah. Just antibody test comes out negative. Doesn't mean you had, didn't have it. And that's when I thought I can't do this anymore. I have to. I need to get it out, yeah. And I think it's so important as well. Like definitely now you get all these articles or people doing silly TikTok videos like disclaiming that COVID's not a thing. I don't know, you get all these like crazy videos. I mean, when 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 did you start your page? Was that during beginning of lockdown or was it, have you had it a while now? I had a few friends that are kind of like the, I just put, yeah, influencer kind of people that got big following. So they're used to doing the whole social yeah. media kind of scene. And they were telling me when lockdown first hit, and I do regret it because I wish I started then, but I was too scared. That's the main thing to put myself out there. And it's always yeah. scary when you start talking about something and like in front of a camera on social media. And also it was a part of my life. I wasn't, I kind of kept my science stuff. Although I like always bitch in my stories about my PhD journey. That was, I was very vocal about that. I mean, my Instagram was just me like training and having a laugh with my friends, yeah. brunch as you do. So to suddenly change the demograph was a bit like, mm, this is a bit strange, but. So did you, did, did you not create a separate page? Did you just change? All right. So you just like, you complete, yeah, just like change your actual main account into what it is today. Because it's a part of my life yeah. and it's a huge part of my life. So yeah. I thought I don't really want to like start another page and like spend even more time on social media. But so also during then I was writing my thesis yeah. so, and I just didn't want another distraction from writing my thesis. So I started everything when I handed in my thesis. So this must yeah. have been around, I handed in September and I think I put my first IGTV up around November. Yeah, um, it's, it's around then. Yeah, it's been amazing to see it grow as well. Cause I, th- I think like definitely with the first lockdown, I noticed a difference, like, the, but it's so hard, isn't it? Like trying to put content out and then I was like doing, working from home as well. And it's, it's so hard at times trying to get the time to kind of like, do both and um i've kind of seen how like, fitness is like a large part of your life how did you fall in love with fitness like? fitness oh gosh um it's always been a part of my life i grew up on the tennis court and like playing and like the tennis teams at university and stuff but um for me then i started to go into like powerlifting, weightlifting, oh, wow. and then um i got introduced to crossfit um a few years ago and like i have literally that crossfit person that just won't shut up about it that culty behavior is it is is it is it the like the community aspect to it and stuff? Because I've always been like, if there's one near me, honestly, I would start CrossFit. Is is it is it more kind of the community of being around everyone, and, like helping each other out? And I think 
think so. I think I was so used to going to the the gym and no offense, but this, the amount of bros that were in there that would just irritate me. And it was always yeah. like sort of like kind of ego trip. Whereas in CrossFit, everyone was just supporting each other, helping each other, cheering each other on. That's People good. all shapes and sizes, all abilities. People have never lifted a, a 2kg dumbbell before. Yeah. It's really what was quite nice. Like everyone just supporting each other. But my main reason why I love it is because at least with CrossFit, there's so many different skills to learn. There's gymnastics, there's weightlifting, and there's yeah. the and there's always something to get better at and I think that's why I like it is there's always whereas I found with powerlifting it was just the three big movements that you had to improve on whereas CrossFit is dynamic it's everything and yeah. that that's kind of what I enjoyed about it and it definitely has kept me sane during lockdown for sure yeah I need to do it like because I, I hate the gym so I, I started it and then I get bored on this like three months later and then I found swimming now. <laughs> Swimming's like a new thing. So I've been doing that quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I, I literally like, I twisted like my ankle, I fell over it. <laughs> so then I was like out. So cause I, then I was like, oh, I can't even, cause I was trying to do um, like boxing. So like just keep fit, not like actual like sparring, but just more just kind of the fitness side of it. And um, I feel like once I exercise it, for me, it kind of helps my mental health like so much. And like, yeah, you feel so much better after it. But yeah, it's been amazing to kind of have you on the podcast today. Kind of talk about obviously kind of the science side behind allergies and obviously the COVID and everything. So yeah, it's been great to kind of discuss that on the podcast. And I feel I've got much kind of better understanding now and I'm sure like the listeners will as well. So yeah, next time someone asks me about allergies, I'm like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, it's been nice to revisit this part of my life again because I've not yeah. done allergy research in quite a few years i know i can't believe how fast it's gone i was going to say if anyone wants to kind of follow you on like instagram um can you share your handle with us yeah so it's just doctor but like d-o-c-t-o-r dot yaz y-a-s underscore so dr yaz on on instagram i was like should i really go by doctor and i was like do you know what i got my i worked my so yeah So, um, yeah, but please, anyone, like, fire questions in my way, I'm always happy to help. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, guys, go and check her out. So, doctor.yaz.